Welcome to Likeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Likeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Likeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash likevillepodcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash likevillepodcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Wiggle Room. Being that it's the city's most vibrant burlesque venue, a night at Wiggle Room feels like a trip back in time to Montreal's rebellious youth. Right across from Schwartz's and other Montreal landmarks, the Wiggle Room promises to entertain on the coldest winter night and the longest summer evening alike. Finally, we receive support from Good Mix, a hearty breakfast mix that really, really cares about your gut health. It keeps you full and makes your body happy. What more could you want in a meal to start your day? You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. A note for today's episode, because of some technical issues out of our control, the conversation between Babette and John is cut off about halfway into today's episode. A few minutes later, the conversation picks up on the topic of feminism. Additionally, Babette's microphone picks up quite a bit of noise from an open window. Unfortunately, recording a phone call has its limitations. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. So welcome to the Likeville podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with philosopher Babette Babich. I've known Babette for quite some time, and I've wanted to have her on the podcast, um, well, since the podcast started, <laughs> but, uh, but she's a world traveler, never really stays in one place, so it's always difficult to you know, nail her down. She's like Jason Bourne of philosophers. But anyway, uh, welcome, Babette. Great to great to talk to you finally. Well, thank you, John. Thank How you for are having you me here. In oh, the um, city state of New York City, how are you doing? We're doing great today. It's not cold. It's not cold. Yeah. Well, I was no. in. I was um, in New Jersey just uh, this past weekend, and it was really quite warm. I mean, like, it's strange. I mean, maybe this is just my memory (laughs) skewed by global warming or something because, but we were down there for Christmas and in New Jersey and there were dandelions on the front lawn where we were and green grass, which was just weird. I mean, it's just very, very, you know, it's one thing to dream of a white Christmas, right? I, I get it. If you're in the mid-Atlantic, maybe you don't always get a white Christmas. In Montreal, you always get a white Christmas. But <laughs> and, but to go down there and see a dandelion as if we're in fucking California, it was weird. It was really like, it felt like um, eerie, you know, like not right. Right. Yeah. Sure. Well, climate change, climate yeah. something. Something, yeah. Climate so something. I... So you you've written lots of books. I've enjoyed them. I've enjoyed them all. Uh, your most recent book, which is as you've said, you know, is is really sort of three books in one in many ways. 
um, but the hallelujah effect. Maybe you could just before you know we get into some specific issues from that book. Maybe you could just tell our listeners what is the what is the book about? What are your main sort of themes and and arguments? You know the the sort of the thumbnail <laughs> sketch. It's hard to do. I tell people now, don't write three books in one. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe pick pick the one book in the Hallelujah Effect that most pertains to Leonard Cohen, since this is Montreal and we love Leonard oh, Cohen. Yeah. Um, and oh, yeah. and tell the story of that book. Well, that's what started it. That's the whole. That's the whole reason for the book. But the, that part is the first part. So if you start and you're not, there's no danger of getting too far because it gets harder as it goes. So you, <laughs> it's like you climbing your mountain. You you know the the weak hearted give up before the top. Yeah. So so so. The letter Cohen is right there at the beginning, and that's the challenge. And so the Holy Effect is also very much about what you're doing, the podcast, very much about some of the things you've written about on Facebook. It's about the power of digital media, and so we call social media, but it's the digital thing. Uh, and that was always there with broadcasting. Broadcasting happens in lots of ways. Originally, it happens with radio. Now it happens with podcasting, and I love the cast metaphor there. But mm-hmm. that's what the Hallelujah Effect is, is. It's the effect. It's how this happens that you can be that captivated by a song that even classically trained people like John Cale, already a fan of Leonard Cohen, can be so captivated by the song that he can make the song into something that made it what it was. So it's not that it wasn't what wasn't that in the beginning, but after John Cale transforms it, it becomes what it is. And then everybody took it. Then everybody ran with it, including Cohen himself. So, I mean, one of his last tours, especially in in Dublin, that particular version was very, very moving to the, you know, to the audience. And of course, to those who watch it on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So that's what that's about. And of course, it's a very strange song yeah yeah no it's uh it it, it's you know the funny thing is is if you're from montreal and and leonard cohen is like religion here right and so i heard hallelujah his version pretty much right when it came out my mom had had the record and like listened to it and everybody sort of agreed it was a shitty song like it wasn't (laughs) nobody liked it Nobody liked it. It was, uh, you know, and these are hardcore Leonard fans. I mean, the kind of people who sort of like the obscure song on the B-side of an obscure album. And they were like, "Eh, eh, not a really good tune. You know, like, uh, so, but, and then it gets, it's amazing the way these people who are really, really accomplished poets and singers and writers you know people like bob dylan and also they they see this song and they're like wow that that is something that could be really beautiful it just it's it's basically it's half baked you know like I, I it needs work it's not it's not there yet right so and they sort of with their own kind of genius rework it and make it into this great song and then and then of course Leonard starts singing it the way these other people have interpreted it. That's right. Which is fascinating. I mean, it's just like absolutely wild. 
You know, I was I was talking to the producer uh, of the podcast before uh, before you you came on, and I was telling him about the whole story and everything. And he he's a musician. He's a singer himself. Eric's a singer, and he said, "Well, yeah, that that's hap- happens very often in music." And he he said, "You know, you had drummers in the 1980s who were." Uh, trying to be more precise so that they could sound like the drum machines, the digital sort of, mm-hmm. you know, robotic kind of like. And meanwhile, the drum machines went in the other direction and tried to sound more authentic like real drummers. And now the end result is that it's it's absurd. It's like people trying to sound like the robots that are trying to sound like them. It's like one giant uncanny valley. It's like, but, oh. yeah. Well. That's the cover phenomenon, and that is the same thing as the hallelujah effect, because you wind up repeating it. This is, this is almost impossible, because you echo it. That's, that's where the Adorno part comes in, so even if you don't like Adorno, his point is that this is where psychologists get very excited, because your brain recognizes the, th- the same sound. Even the original composer recognizes and wants to replicate the same sound, so that oh, yeah. others will have the same response. Well, you can just say one line, like once upon a time, and that automatically formats somebody's mind to hear a certain mm-hmm. kind of story, right? So if, if you say like a like just a little note, a couple notes, a few chords, right? Then right away people know what's going to be coming, right? It's, uh, yeah. What do you think about this idea, Babette? I've been thinking about this with reference to your book, do you think that maybe there is something inherent to digital media that is um, sort of, if you think about it in terms of like the symposium, right, that uh, digital media is uh, Aristophanic and uh, digital love is Aristophanic and the kind of democratic love, the sort of Walt Whitman love that we need in order to have a complicated pluralistic uh, society like the United States or Canada is fundamentally Socratic. So the it's a Socratic love that that is is kind of in love with the other and with difference and with like what is not you. And it seems to me, and I got this sort of reading your book a second time recently, that it seems to me like digital media is almost by its very nature all kind of Aristophanes. It's all about finding people that are just like you. And so you it eschews difficulty because difficulty means it's not real love. If it was true love, we would understand each other. you know. And so you've, you basically, you, you go off into this social media land and you find people that are other parts of your soul. They're just like you. And your communication with them is effortless and they, because they just get you, right? And you all just get each other, right? Um, and then, of course, if you try and make people who've grown up in that environment or who've grown accustomed to that environment, you give them a book like The Hallelujah Effect, and they're just so allergic to difficulty and to difference, right? To something that, that requires that you really focus because it's not going to be easy. Do you know what I mean? Like... Oh, I know exactly what you mean because <laughs> that's why we have the like, like, and and even even Twitter imitated Facebook with little hearts. So it be, it's very crucial that we like. We don't like 
things that we don't like and we don't like people who criticize us or who don't like us or who make us work, as you say. But that's why we, it's also really fascinating that we genuinely want to program ourselves. So no one, I mean, the interesting thing about George Orwell, 1984 and the whole thing, that you could think that the big state or deep, whatever language you want, I don't care, make up one, they would want to program you. They might want to influence you or the big companies, Coca-Cola. But in point of fact, we want to program ourselves. We desperately want to program ourselves. So we tune in and young children now, they say, I think they're right about that. It's really very alarming because the absorbent and the plastic mind is very affected by this. And parents love it because you give a kid an iPad and they shut up almost automatically. <laughs> so, so they're completely complicit. Parents are like, we're going to do downtime with our children. Oh, you're not because it's the best pacifier ever invented. Yeah. So it's just never going to happen. But but that's what it is. It's, it's a desire for, for you're right about the Aristophanes reference, but I also think that there is this, this, there is this self-reinforcing uh, self-programming effect and that we do this willingly so no one's no one's making us that's another that's another uncanny aspect that's why it's so effective as a pacifier there's no there's no pressure it's utterly self-directed which is really interesting from the point of view of morality or even some you know people looking on in, internalizing values we've internalized the, uh, the the social media almost completely yeah well i i i, I wrestle with that i mean i but well, leave leave that aside for a second. I just want to say that, in terms of that that particular insight, it is not just uh, you know sort of a random speculation on my own. It's it's from teaching on the symposium, and you know, in my brief teaching career, uh, you know, which is nothing compared to to yours and and other friends of mine. But like, uh, the first time I taught on the symposium was in two thousand two, and in two thousand two. When I uh, and I've, I've taught on it, you know, many, many, many times between then and 2019. It used to be that most most students would conclude that the most compelling vision of love in the symposium was that presented by Socrates, and there would be a couple outliers who would maybe sort of, you know, I I don't know if they were just trying to be iconoclastic or they would would pick some other, you know, random person and, and make an interesting argument for why they were right. But generally speaking, as is always the case, you either side with Socrates or you side with Aristophanes. <laughs> and, you know, usually that's like in the end they, and, and some would say I would disagree with them, but some would say that Plato is stacking the deck in favor of Socrates in that dialogue. But anyway, yeah. point being, there has been a definite, <laughs> definite change where the vast majority of students used to think that Socrates, ultimately, his vision of love was was the correct one. Whereas now, uniformly, they all think Aristophanes is right. They all think they all think that when you meet your people, when you meet your true love, when you meet your your community, you know, however more more and more narrowly defined. The, the hallmark of finding your people is, and this is very sort of, Nietzsche talked about this, that every new movement is a kind of reunion, like a, a family reunion, right? All these people that thought they were alone, you know, meet each other and they, they say, oh, wow, 
you're, you know, it's like when you, you're just like me, right? You're so smart. <laughs> you say exactly what I think. Um, and so um, the digital age sort of facilitates this kind of Aristophanes on, on steroids where like everybody, no matter how, like I like to pet kittens while I masturbate into an empty ketchup you know, container, you know, something really weird. Like there will be other people just like you that are into the same weird. They have the same, you know, weird conspiracy theory that it's not just that the moon landing was faked, but actually space is faked. There's no such thing as space. Like, you know, they'll like, there will be people just like you who can reinforce your, uh, your worldview and, and make you feel, you know, okay, right? And that's, um, I don't know how that can be compatible with, well, definitely with philosophy. I think it's ultimately antithetical to philosophy, the project of philosophy. But it's also antithetical to the project of, of having a pluralistic society. I mean, because... Definitely. I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how, if this continues, I don't know how people like you and I we're an endangered species. Like we're done. Like I'm afraid so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like we're just not. You know, there's no way for us to to the societies that we grew up in and that we sort of took for granted as being worthy of fighting for. I, how how do you defend them in the face of people who say, uh, you know, I don't want to deal with people that are unlike me. I, I don't want to deal with thoughts that make me uncomfortable. Well, I, I, every so often I, I, I pay attention to your own background, which is in addition to philosophy, also sociology. And, and, and I have a huge respect, especially for the challenges of sociology, because I think we're not up to those challenges. <laughs> I think it's extremely, I think it's, I think it's, I think you've put your finger on a, on a huge problem because we are creating the, the conditions, as you've just said for ignoring one another and ignoring one another in favor of an echo. So it's a kind of a very, very one-dimensional narcissus effect. And, and that's, that's really, I mean, I mean every, you know, Sherry Turkle writes about this, Christopher uh, Lash writes about this. This is an old, old insight. It's not new. But now, now you can do it better than ever. And, and, and you can get that echo effect, that echo chamber back mm -hmm. again and again. And I think that's what makes it very pernicious. To be open-minded to the other is extremely hard. The only, I, the, only, the only question which for me remains, which is how we would like there to be some way to decide the differences between different points of view so that we could make an argument and persuade someone, someone to another viewpoint who changed their mind, that's very hard to do. That's, that's really hard to do. I mean, especially the moon, for example. I mean, no one has been there since we have supposedly been there. It's very hard to make arguments <laughs> until we do that. So, you know, just just saying, well, we could have if we felt like it, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a whole lot of things I want to ask you about, about the Hallelujah effect. But one of them, which, of course, my students always, uh, you know, it's one of the, the hurdles of the book that hits you early on, the third chapter, where the... Uh, where you talk about sort of the, the gender angle in, in yes, how you, yes. yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I love that you put that one, 
you know, early on, because it, it really is kind of, um, it, it, you know, I see it as sort of like the book of Leviticus in, you know, the third <laughs> book in the Bible. It's like the third chapter in the Hallelujah. It's like, you know, if you can get through this shit, you, you are worthy of what's to come, you know, but <laughs> it's throwing you something that that is very likely to trip you up. So, but, uh, but you know, you you talk about how, um, you, you you say this one thing, you say, you know, I, I find the male body, I find men like beautiful and erotically interesting in, you know, qua men. It's not even like, you know, just to look at kind of thing. And that th- this makes you deviant, right? And, uh, and you know, it's such, a, it's such a wild claim, but the smarter students, you know, when they, they read on, they're like, oh, yeah, I kind of actually... I actually see what she's talking about, you know, but can you sort of just explain that, that, uh, that insight for our listeners? It's a hard insight, but yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and I have to say, since the book came out in 2013, it's changing very slightly because Wall Street will exploit anybody. Mm-hmm. Thank bless them. But so, so what that means is, is that, is that for a long, long time, the, be- the beautiful, as such, what one is talking about as the beautiful, wasn't what it is in the symposium. It isn't a young man. It isn't someone who is has a wonderful aspect and is just glorious to look at as as a as a boy, which is what Socrates is talking about. Which, when you teach the symposium, is that's the hurdle because mm-hmm. <laughs> because all the students are like what? Wait a minute, no. They don't. You have to explain, you know, Greece to them. Uh, so, 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 so you're absolutely right. But the thing, the thing about the beauty of the male is that we don't see that in our Western tradition. We do find it a stumbling block when we read Plato. It, it, it shocks, in fact, some teachers so much that they don't teach the symposium because it upsets them to have to have to talk about things like that because students notice it and will want to hear about what that means. They'll raise their hand and say, what is this, you know, makes no sense. So male beauty fell from grace a long, long time ago. And instead in the Western painting tradition, uh, we have as representation, as the as the object of beauty, as you know, Alexander Nehamas has has beautiful book called, you know, the the the, the promise of happiness, which it's is a all delightful, a, delightful book. Yeah, it's and it it's and it's and I have a picture from them, which he also uses uh, in his book in the Hallelujah effect. But I kind of compare what he doesn't do, which would be to use uh, Flandrin's young man seated by the sea to compare it with his, you know, seated, you know, seated swimmer, which is a lady sitting by the sea, uh, mm-hmm. crouched and bathing. And Alexander is saying, because Alexander is Greek, and he's like, some, you know, people today are like, well, she's not slim enough for me. And he's like, if you like woman, you're gonna like that picture, <laughs> and and it's 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 very subtle. It's an extremely pointed point, and his point is that there's a there's a voluptuousness of the appreciation of the eye, which is necessary in order to look at uh, th- that particular uh, a painting, and that when it comes, that's that's Bouguereau, it's wonderful painting, very very sensual. But what's missing for us and for our eye is any one at all. 
I mean, I mean, Alexander shocking all the people in aesthetics and philosophy of art by even talking about the fact that you would appreciate what something looks like as a sexual object at all in a painting of a naked lady, which is strange. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, that's quite shocking. Uh, adding this other question of men is completely unprecedented because we don't do it in art, although the Greeks have only the, the guys. They're not there to be looked at. Yeah. And that's something very, very important. You're not meant to be seeing them. When Socrates talks about looking at the boys in this way, these you need Foucault to understand that. They could also be young girls. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it's, 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 they're objects. In this yeah. case, you're different when you get to appreciating a man as a man or appreciating someone who's male because we don't represent the male body as if it were something to be looked at. And then, and here's where the harassment problem comes in and existentialism comes in. If women do judge a male body in that way, appraising, you know, appraisingly, appraise, appraisingly, judging it, this is very bad for men. They do not <laughs> like it. This is this 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 ruins everything. And so 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 it's not as if it's an option and you could say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to objectify men. Because men objectified are not happy. Yeah. Well that is actually you know, that is a fascinating change that's happening in the culture. And yes, it's yes, the, yes. the erotic order is actually changing in certain respects and it's changing in places that you would not expect it to change so if you look at the the kind of this sort of uh, you know i'm speaking in broad generalizations here but if you look at like sort of the emo um, artists and stuff like that they're really sort of like intense kind of the, the people who in terms of their their p- politics on twitter are super social justice warrior i'm like a uber feminist kind of bands right like cold play type bands right they yes. are still in many ways um stuck in the same kind of aesthetic that you're talking about, right? In the same kind of, like, erotic order. But if you look in things like hip-hop, like, if you look at 50 Cent, like, in in his magazine covers and in his self-presentation, there is a, like, just a total embrace of, like, the gaze. And he's there to be a beautiful object, you know, with his ripped abs and his, like, his scars and his, like... He's very much, there's a kind of a dandyism there, you know, that's like, um, which seems to to bubble up from kind of uh, Latino culture, from African-American, African-Canadian culture, which sort of is a, a new kind of aesthetic, right? Where Where they are totally comfortable with being objectified and being kind of, looked at and being the the object of beauty right but but it is very much a new thing i mean you know back in the in the 70s the only people that were doing this were like the village people and it was like a total gay thing it was like not uh, but now it has migrated into uh, sort of heteronormative kind of male behavior in certain areas like it's uh, it's quite fascinating you know but it's it's I'm, new I'm, and it is new. I, that's why I say it's, it has changed completely. And now you do have male depictions in commercial representations. But I don't think it's still there for female delectation. I really don't. So yeah. I, don't think, I don't think even the example you've just given is for women. 
um, there is there is even in heteronormative uh, interactions a, a homosexual element. I mean, men in Wall Street they dress beautifully, and I love men's clothes, but they wear them for one another. Oh wow! You think? Oh, I that's know. So. Fascinating. I mean, that's... I wish I wish they would choose their shoes for me, but no. But no, so <laughs> I I compliment people, you know. I mean, I like certain things, but it it's not. It's never for. It's never to to, and the, and I think the reason is deeply Hegelian. I, I think the reason is that 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 women and men pick up pick up artists know this. Men pick up artists know this. All you need to do to get almost any lady is to desire her, compliment her, tell her how good she looks, and that's very effective. Because women want men to want them. So that's, uh, that's like, that's, and it doesn't really matter what he looks like. So it's. <laughs> Have you ever read any of these pickup artist books? <laughs> yes, of course. I, I had to because I, I, when I was in Germany, I was one, people asked me to explain the phenomenon of Twitter and texting. And I, and I thought, what's going on? And I said, this is these, of course I read these things. They're, they're great. They're, 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 they're very effective, I think. I, I find them more depressing than <laughs> Mein Kampf. I, I actually, really? I, for my love and friendship class, I, I decided because I, I gave a list at the end of one class. I said, you know, here are a list of, a list of sort of subjects that I have very self-consciously not covered. Um, are, do you think I should cover any of these? And if there's something I haven't mentioned, can you write it in? And, uh, you know, just in, I think in one semester, I had like maybe 75, 80 students who said, you know, we'd really like you to cover the, the pickup artist um, books, you know, because they're like <laughs> bestsellers. So I went and I bought three of them. I bought um, The Game. And oh, yes. I, mm-hmm. I brought... Uh, anyway, about like three of them. I got one of them. It depressed me so much, this book. It was, it just presented, like I was trying to, you know, because I, you know, I've been taught by people like Horst Tutter and by growing up in a, in a religious background, I read in a, in a, deeply, deeply empathetic way. I try and I don't read where it's me with this distance from the text. I, you know, I just like jump, you know, like Katie Lang singing a song, you know, like I, I, I jump right <laughs> into the song and try and like just see the world um, through the author's eyes while I'm reading the book. And then, you know, once I put it down, I can like think about it critically. But while I'm reading the book, I want to really try and understand what's what's being said, right? And it was disturbing putting myself in the mindset of somebody who could write that. Somebody who was so alone and so lonely and and longing for these people that you ultimately yeah. see as alien, as like yeah. another species. And so you want yeah. them, and That's you right. want them to want you, but you you hate them. And, well, And you just, you don't understand, you don't relate to them at all, right? So, I mean, one of the things that comes through in the, in the game is that this guy, he never actually, once he actually seals the deal, he like, he... 
he has sex with these people for, and it's like, it's totally like wham, bam, thank you, man. I mean, it's like, you know, he, he's not like doing it properly at all. Like, oh my no, God. No, he's, uh, like, he's just like, you know, like, boom, he's like the minute man, you know, in and out, you know, in and out in a snatch, right? Like, anyway, he's like, he's he, basically, and that's, that's the end. And, and he's got the notch on the belt. He's closed the deal. Uh, and, and then he goes on and you, you read that he, he presents this as a war story. And the thing is, it's like you read this and it's so sad. You're like, uh, that is not a story of conquest. Like that is a story of like something deeply sad. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, even the, the, the guys I know, you know, the, you know, when I was younger, I mean, like, they've all grown up now from this stuff. But like when I was younger, the guys who were like really hardcore players who got a lot of action. They actually liked women. Like they really loved women and they got, they got callbacks. Okay. They got repeat, you know, you know, this, the guy, he presents a system of erotics where it's all about getting somebody to, it's almost like a, uh, like a, Somebody who is a confidence, like a artist or something. Like you just want people to be interested in you for this night, and and that's it. And you don't ever want to have any connection with them. It's sociopathic. Yes, but a lot of our society is like that, and and actually one of the great problems is the tinderification of relationships and the hookup culture. A certain amount of that has also percolated down to regular everyday relationship because there is a tendency in that direction rather than not, although the game is very explicit about it. I mean, there's a... Because... The, the, if you compare that with The Rules, which is a very bad book, but it's a very effective book, The Rules, uh, written by these, these two ladies who, who told ladies how to get married. Um, yeah. Other ladies. Uh, the, the, the comparison, it's the same book. It's just written differently. Yeah. Turned inside out. And that now things have, I don't know that any of these things would work at all for very young, for young people, which is, I think, what people can misunderstand. New culture has taken away this idea that you would delay by conversation or chat or any other thing, just simply having sex right off straight off the bat. And that, which is my personal way of characterizing hookup culture, because it's like, oh, let's get together and boom, that's it, that's all. The, the effect can be that you don't want to see the other person again almost immediately, because things have to go very well indeed for you to want to do that, as you say, the callbacks. That would yeah. be the danger. And that, for young people, has become a very, very great danger. And I think this is the only way that I can understand the new, the new research that suggests that there's less sex uh, yeah. in this culture than ever, ever before. Yes. Oh, I, I was teaching on that literally, like, just this morning. Uh, we, were, we were talking mm. about what they call the sex recession and how uh, right now— um, young people in their in their teens and twenties are having less sex than I mean since the Pew Research Center started like doing survey data on this, which was about a hundred years ago. Nobody has ever had less sex than young people are having today. It's yeah. it's amazing. I mean, but you know, we we we'll get into that in a second. But first of all, I don't know if you've ever seen. There's an an, an XKCD comic. There's an XKCD comic. Which is absolutely hilarious. I, I love him. He's so funny. Uh, where he talks about 
The the comic is basically just he's like I had the most beautiful dream last night. All the people who've read the game met up with all the people who've read the rules and they left all the rest of us alone. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a, I'll send it to you. It's like an amazing comic. It's perfect. But but, but, but the thing exactly is is I've actually perfect. seen mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. in in <laughs> real time with a lot of my with a lot of my uh students and and friends and sort of uh acquaintances where there'd be a certain kind of guy and he's um you know he would have been 10 years ago he would have been really into like the men's rights movement um really into like Robert Bly and Iron John and that bullshit anyway but then he would have moved into being really into like uh, Jordan Peterson and things like that. Yes. Anyway, and and this guy who's so angry about like feminism and about you know various things like that, and this guy you know he reads the 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 game and he reads these pickup artist books, and he goes out there and he he does these things, and I'm okay. I'm, I'm thinking about one person in in particular who. You have met, uh, but I'll, I'm not going to say it on the air. I'll tell you later on. But um, the this this particular guy, he he again and again he ends up with these women who are just horrible human beings. Like they are just these really kind of sociopathic, uh, looking for uh, some in a very instrumental way, looking for a guy who's going to provide for them. Uh, you know, very like done up with the with the spray tan and like the you know going to the gym and like all and the fake boobs and the the dyed blonde hair and all this stuff, and so he he would end up with these women like this, and uh, and sooner or later the relationship would just you know would just implode, and then that would just become further evidence in support of his horrible uncharitable view of women uh, in general but the thing is it's like to everybody else who sees him from the outside we're all like dude like you're signaling like you're uh, you're attracting these types like you're behaving in these super douchey ways and that attracts a certain kind of really douchey woman right and then the two of you basically just reinforce each other's misandry or misogyny you know what I'm saying? It's this really sick, sick kind of environment where these people who, who, um, these men who, who basically either fear or misunderstand or hate women find these women who fear and misunderstand or hate men. It's so sad. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. It's, 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 it's maybe the game changer recently in philosophy has been authored by an analytic philosopher, a Can- an Australian, not a Canadian this time, um, who, who, who has a book called A Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. And I, I, I recommend that book. I mean, so she would be the, she's the enemy of, of poor Jordan Peterson. No. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, 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 I admire many things about you, but I also admire your willingness to, 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 to give Jordan Peterson, you know, more than the benefit of the doubt, because I think, I think that's a very important thing to do. I mean, I joke because for me, you know, 
in philosophy, Freud is okay, Lacan is very, very shishi, and Jung, <laughs> you can never talk about Jung, because if you do, then people know there's something wrong with you. Uh, and, and there's no argument for that. It's, it's just a given. So that's, that's the paradigm, you know. Freud, I mean, Freud is, why is Freud okay? But <laughs> Lacan, why is he okay? But Jung, no, absolutely not. So what I find interesting about, about Peterson is that he even looks at Jung. And that he takes that and looks at these things. I don't necessarily agree, of course, of course, with some of the things that the rhetoric, uh, uh, etc., is sometimes transparent. But I, I admire very much that, that there is at least a different way of looking at the question, raising the question, putting the question. And to him comes a wonderful complement or counterpart, and that is Kate Mann and, you know, like professor of philosophy at uh, Cornell, uh, who has, this is apparently, uh, I think it comes out of her dissertation, but it's a brand relatively new book, but it was instantly successful. And I think what made it successful is that without doing the things that I do, you know, let's look at men as if they were, as if they were beautiful, because I think they are, uh, or talking about some things one doesn't usually talk about, she simply looked at the tendency that men have to silence women. Yeah. And by strangling them, for example, in domestic violence. And once you look at statistics of various kinds, and that's, of course, unfortunately, also what Althusser did, you know, <laughs> and got away with it uh, because he was, you know, he couldn't help himself. He, he sort of strangled his wife in bed, uh, uh, that sort of thing. And they said he must have been crazy. So he's, he did, 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 I think, six months and was out and was celebrated. But but her her point is that there is this there is something inherent in our society that is self justifying for those who wish to express this, and I like it mostly because the language down girl in an academic situation is one I've heard again and again and again when a man finds or a bunch of men find that a woman is uppity especially if they like that woman, that maybe if they're attracted to her, and she says something out of turn, they will say down girl to her, just the way you would say, you know, to a golden retriever. Wow. That's wild. That's, that's completely wild. I, 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 my, my skep- I have a little bit of skepticism of that, that stuff, and it's just because okay. if you look at the research into um, sort of... Uh, close intimate violence, right? Um, the levels of intimate violence among um, gay men are way, way, way higher than the levels of intimate violence. And I, you know, I, I, I have a, a lot of friends and former students that are police officers and work in law enforcement, right. and they, right. they've uh-huh. all completely, you know, backed this up. The level of intimate violence among, like, gay men is way, way higher than it is among uh, a lesbian couples. And so this would seem to suggest that maybe men are just, you know, and this the fact that I have to say this tentatively is a testament to how insane our age is. It should be just obvious. But anyway, uh, it seems to me that men are just uh, on average, not all of them, of course, but like men are on average more violent um, than they have. And there's various kinds of explanations for that, which kind of problematizing misogyny. Like, why do we call women's issues minority issues? 
like, <laughs> what? <laughs> well, they're not, as she points out. But but your but your argument, the way you had represented your argument, just reminded me of the of the collision that she has with the real problem that then that then is the birth of of, of feminism and the birth of of gender studies because she starts it all and she starts it all by seeing that it's not just something that you can uh, say. Well, some some people are mean to women and some people are not, but she sees it as a constitutive problem in all societies. And then being Simone de Beauvoir, being French, she goes through anthropology, she goes through literature, she goes through the law to answer further questions. Yeah. Well, they, you know, there's some people have said that, right, like uh, all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, which is a scandalous, horrible expression. It was Whitehead who said that, right? Like, uh, but uh, it's it's not true. But anyway, uh, but we I think we can say with confidence that, that all are. of he feminism, meant that we are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but like we can say with confidence that all uh, feminism is a footnote to Simone de Beauvoir. Like really, if you read the second sex carefully, it's all there. I mean, it's all yes. there. Like she just lays it right out. I mean, like it's uh, it's a very very powerful. Uh, text i mean just like uh, i mean we have the simone de beauvoir institute here at uh, concordia university and my my friend kimberly manning who actually was uh, a uh, guest on the likeville podcast she ran for public office recently but uh we we talked about this like in the interview about how um you know what it was like to be um the head of the simone de beauvoir institute and she you know she said well you know you 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 just read her stuff and it, it's just all there. <laughs> it's just like she just lays out all of the problems in a way with a kind of candor that I think uh, and and a lack of uh, and and this is something you have too actually in your writing. You know, I find like the the super bro guys like the the football players in my class who will read your stuff. Whenever you bring up. And I, I'm not really sure how you do this. It's like a magic trick. But like when you talk about like feminist themes and you critique, you know, things like, you know, misogyny and stuff like that, somehow it seems to just get through to the guys in a way that other people don't. And and I the only explanation I have for why that is the case is that somehow you convey through your writing that you really love men. <laughs> That you really love them and you like them. And <laughs> so if if you can, it's weird. It's like if you can somehow convey through your writing or your music or your speech that you, that you love somebody and you care about them and you think they're worthy of love and, and they're interesting, you can get away with the most harsh criticism and it's, it somehow is like, okay. And they're like, oh, okay, I should probably think about that. Like, Whereas if you if you communicate that I think you are a deplorable, like you're a basket of deplorables, you're fucking disgusting, you make me sick, the world would be better if you were not here, uh, then even the mildest criticism is interpreted in the harshest terms. It's bizarre. It's I, What do you think is going on there? Is it, is it just basically like a rhetoric thing or... I think it's partially a rhetoric thing. I think I, I, I also, I also, I mean, I, I think you have, you, you put your finger on a very, very good point, but that may be partly what one needs for the, for the focus on diversity or the focus on being open to others, because what is often missing 
is 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 genuine respect or seeing what someone actually has to offer, which you were describing, talking about Horst Tatter's methods of teaching, which I recognize because that's actually Gadamer's way. That's how Gadamer taught me, and it's a very important thing to 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 respect the, the text in itself or the position that the other has on their terms is as is really requires that first word respect and and that's hard to do because many times we come at something aggressively already knowing that it can't be right and mm-hmm. already disrespecting the, the the person's right to speak and that you know why do i have to read this and that kind of thing and that can happen with students sometimes and it sort of gets in the way yeah. It's funny because Nietzsche, Nietzsche said the worst kind of readers were like plundering soldiers, right? They just sort of go in and try and find something that will sort of uh, serve their agenda and prove, you know, whatever it is that they want to prove. But he. That's he analytic philosophy. Yes. Yeah, they take the bits know, they like and they leave the rest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but he didn't live to see the kind of readers that we have today on, on the online. They are way worse than the plundering soldiers that he imagined. They are like sort of reading a text or watching a YouTube video, and they are like, they're not looking for stuff to confirm. You know, it's not like a sort of a, an exegesis of a, a particular, I don't know, a, a Christian from some sect who wants to prove that, you know, the book of Isaiah supports whatever they're saying about NATO. You know, like, uh, that at least they are going into the book of Isaiah with the respect that there's truth here and this is an authoritative text and I want to sort of show that Isaiah or Marx or Nietzsche or, you know, the Quran or like whatever supports my project. That is, that is actually, that is a huge upgrade from what we have now. What we have now is people who are actively going into a, a text or going into uh, of whatever kind, and they're looking for examples of um, uh, misogyny, or looking for examples of uh, misandry, or looking. They're, they're going in with a, an incredibly hostile attitude, right? And like that's you're you're. I mean, I don't know what's worse. I mean, I, I suspect that. That's even worse than the plundering soldiers Nietzsche had in mind. True, uh, because they're 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 walking instantiations of prejudice. So it's very different. The, the plundering soldier just wants to get a quote that they can use for their own purposes because they want to write their own argument and they don't really care about the source. Uh, they just want you know embellishments. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they want booty, but. But this, what you're now talking about are those who are looking to confirm a prejudice or who are simply wounded readers looking for yet another demonstration of something that they find wrong. And it's almost impossible, once you, once you start reading in that way, it's impossible to stop reading that way. You know, it's it's I'm 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 drowning in Heidegger and the Black Notebooks, and, and it's uh, there's 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 just no way to to once you once you look at this to then suddenly stop and say, uh, is what was there any other reason we ever had for reading Heidegger? 
Yeah. Well, I had I had a student who was a, a fairly you know a fairly promising student, and he was reading. I this was a class I assigned uh, words in blood like flowers, um, and and he read. I don't know. I don't know how much he read of your book, but like he came came back to me and he said, "This just seems like you know like like Pomo." bullshit and like just like talking and all these like you know like just making shit up it's like you know and i'm and you know when a when a 17 year old tells you this you know that he didn't just think that up for himself he he got that from somewhere because like he he didn't just come up with that right so like how does he know what pomo is like in 2013 or whatever like uh he didn't he somebody told him like preset him to as soon as he finds encounters difficulty of a certain kind in a text that you can just discount this difficulty because it's just people trying to snow you with like you know difficult terms and and, and so i said to him like well i think basically well i said first of all you're wrong but what's more interesting than you're wrong is that like why are you presuming when you read this uh, text that you are far smarter than the author? <laughs> and this was so, it's funny, this is so foreign to his consciousness. Like, I said, do you think, you know, even in my class for half a semester, I said, you, you think I'm a smart guy? And he's like, oh, yeah, you're the smartest you drive this semester. I'm like, okay, well, Babbitt Babbage is like 10 times smarter than I am. So why don't, when you're reading this text, why don't you presume that you're in the presence of somebody who knows way more shit than you do? Like, why don't you, like, struggle to try and understand what's being said? Like, why don't you... And, and this is one of the, those ways where I, I see, like, the decline of religion as being sad, right? Because people, especially, you know, sort of the people of the book, right? Like, if you get, like, you know, hardcore Muslims or Christians or Jews in your class... Even if they're total atheists and they're all into Sam Harris and stuff like that, whatever, Christopher Hitchens, they at least have this this sort of they've learned this this attitude that when you encounter a book, you it's a good sort of way to encounter a book to assume that the author, especially if this is a book that comes highly recommended or is old, uh, it's a good assumption to assume that the author might have something interesting things to say. That has been lost. It's weird. It's been largely lost. Well, it's, it's also the case that words in blood, like flowers, assumes a familiarity with all of Greek literature and all of German <laughs> literature. And that's kind of a big assumption to make. And I don't think I was justified in doing that because... People no longer have that background, and maybe they don't want to have that background. But that's what that that's what that book is for. It's for those who want to talk about poetry. I mean, the title is stolen in equal parts from Nietzsche and and Hodlin, so it's their language. But but that means you need to have read those guys and the, and what they read, what what Hodlin read, what what Nietzsche read. And that takes you back to the Greeks, and the Greeks are very foreign to us. I mean, people are always saying we need to look more into the Orient. But I always think that, you know, to, to have, you know, a kind of a culture of encounter with the other, I think the Greek is already our other because we have gotten so far away 
from the Greek and from the Greek tradition that we don't fully understand it any longer. I mean, I think that's also what happened to Horst Tauter himself. When, mm-hmm. he, when he sat in, in Pierre Hadot's classes, I think he was blown away by someone who showed him the otherness that he thought he already knew and knew nothing about. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you look at the, the kind of fiction that does really, really well. Um, I think if you can grab people, people are willing to do the work. And, and there's, there's a lie that's told and repeated that you have to dumb everything down in order to get engagement. But if you look, people get really involved in, like, let's say, Game of Thrones or, or yes. Harry Potter, or they yes. get involved. In, and they suddenly are spending hours and hours every week going and reading all of these wikis and going and reading all of the novels, which are not short. They're hundreds of pages long each, and they have a lot of minutiae, and they sometimes have, like, whole new languages. And people are willing to do the work if they've been grabbed and they've been convinced that there's something interesting here, right? Like, so I think you can write a book that presumes a lot, and people that are grabbed by it will just go... And, and and kind of try and like figure out like if they hear a reference they'll be like, oh man I want to I want to understand this more so I'm going to go and look it up right so I mean like I this is one of the reasons Luther said that he didn't want to do away with the Old Testament was you know because of course after the Reformation there were lots of people saying yeah let's just get rid of this right like uh, and he said no I think it's really good and salutary salutary for a lot of reasons to keep all of the Jewish scriptures because people are going to hear references to them in the Gospels and Paul's letters and they're going to go back and that's going to deepen their faith and their understanding in, in the Revelation. So I think it's it's fine if you make reference to things that people have not seen. Uh, I mean, think of how many people over the centuries have gone back and read Greek and Roman sources because they were absolutely mesmerized by Montaigne's essays. And Montaigne I, quotes mm, things and he doesn't provide a, uh, he doesn't provide a, mm, you know, mm. he just like lays it out. He's like, go look it up yourself, bitch. Like he, he doesn't like, <laughs> he doesn't like provide a translation. He's like, fuck, take it. There you go. Like, you know what I mean? And like, it's, I think there's something very, pe- people are, I mean, look at the civilizations we've built as a species. We like to work. I agree. We're not well, I'm, lazy. I'm, you're, you're, you are cheering me up. It's just that it's just that it's actually fairly recently that we've stopped reading in the way we used to. In 1984, when I was in Tubingen, you had to read Greek or you couldn't study philosophy. You had to read <laughs> Greek or you couldn't register for the class. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was 1984, yeah. and 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 I know for some people they weren't born at that time. I understand that, of course. I am old, but nonetheless, 1984 is you know I I I had a computer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not it's not that long ago. There, yeah. there, there was the beginning of the internet. You know, it was happening at the time. Well, 1984, so, like in my sense of time. Uh, you know the the 18th century is like a few weeks ago to me in my okay. in my okay. consciousness okay. the way I think about time. So <laughs> yeah, 1984 is like 
you know, yesterday. So, but, but yeah, our, our conception of time has sped up remarkably. And, and what's mm-hmm. funny is that we tend in the 21st century West, we tend to think that everybody else is like us and they're fucking not. My son speaks Mandarin. He's, he's wow, very immersed really? in Chinese uh, culture and civilization. And like, they, even with all of the most up-to-date gadgets, they they read about things that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago, 3,000, and it's, it feels so close. It feels so immediate, right? It feels like it's something, and I talked to my, like, my Muslim students, recent immigrants to Canada, and, like, they also, they, they feel, you talk to them about things that happened, you know, a thousand years ago, 15, and, and they get, you know, physically upset, and it's like, oh, that was really insulting, that was a horrible life. So this this incredibly kind of reduced, narcissistic, narrow historical consciousness is a very new thing. Not very new. Right? It's like, I think, uh, I think we're the exception as a culture. We're the exception. Most people, most established civilizations that are not just sort of emerging out of some catastrophic event where they had to just like, where they had a dieback of 90% of the population and they had to rebuild from scratch. Most established civilizations, uh, which is what we should be, um, they have a, you know, an, an intimate emotional connection to their roots and to their, you know, whatever those roots might be. And, and I realized that a connection to Greek and Roman roots is itself from the perspective of human history as a species absurd, right? It's like, it's like, Oh, I remember the last 15 minutes of the, you know, 24 hours of our species existence, as opposed to the last 30 seconds, you know, like, uh, but it's, it's better than, than thinking 1984 is a long time ago. (laughs) Like it's, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's uh, it's 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 better than it's much better than nothing, you know. But, so uh, so, do you, I have a question for you. Do do you do you continue to have great enthusiasm for Jordan Peterson? Well, I you know basically my okay, and I've never said this on the air, but I'll yeah, I'll say it now. I don't care. <laughs> but uh, we can lose tons of subscribers. I don't give a shit. Uh, we'll but, gain them. We'll okay, gain so um, here here's my story with Jordan Peterson. Um, I suddenly had all of these students coming into my class who were these just really, really, I mean, it, it must be like what it was like to teach in the 60s or 70s. And suddenly you have all these Anne Rand enthusiasts coming in your class, mm-hmm. right? And they're crazy about like... Anne Rand, and they think, you know, she's like the second coming of Christ, and they, she just, you know, they're, they're really, really excited about, or newly minted born-again Christians, or, you know, whatever, just these people who've, like, found Jesus, and they're, like, they're really excited, so I had these students coming to my class, and they were so excited about Jordan Peterson, and in class discussion, they would say, oh, that's exactly like something Jordan Peterson said, and, you know, and then, um, so I mentioned this to... Uh, some of my friends at the reading group. Well, you have a friend, Janice. Like you, you, you stayed with them with with Tracy, like our friend. Yes, friend oh Jess. yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. I told Tracy we, we were speaking. He says hi. 
Yeah, yeah they're this wonderful. You know, really one of my wonderful people. Yeah, yes, really indeed. sweet, sweet. One of my closest friends in the world, and like uh, godparents of my children. <laughs> they're wonderful. Anyway, so we have a reading group, and with them, and with a, a whole bunch of other people, and we meet on a fairly regular basis, and like. I mentioned, I'm like, look, everybody's talking about this Jordan Peterson guy. And immediately, everybody in the group is like, he's an asshole. <laughs> like, he's a horrible, horrible, and they started saying all this stuff about him. So I I got interested, and I started, like, looking into him. And, uh, and, and I basically, well, first of all, I found his whole, like, kind of, obsession about the the trans issue and the, there's a new like law going to be passed in Ontario and everything. And so I went and looked at the law and the law didn't say what he said it was going to do. Like, and so I thought, okay, this guy is, you know, I can't tell if he's just full of shit and is basically like just lying and he knows he's lying or if he's just somebody who is um, mistaken you know, that he basically didn't understand correctly what was going on and he overreacted to something that was not there, right? <laughs> so um, so I I basically, I, I sent out, like, to a number of friends, like, messages, people who, who knew him, and in fact, some people who had worked with him as grad students um, at University of Toronto, and they all said, you know, uniformly, they came back and they said, Oh, he's like really sweet. He's an amazing advisor. He's very, very conscientious. Every time you send drafts to him, he he responds to drafts in a really timely manner, and he gives you tons of like really, really constructive, amazing criticism. He's extremely supportive, and this is from women, um, gay, gay and lesbian people. Uh, in fact, uh, to trans former grad students of his. And they were like, oh, yeah, he's – none of them said – like, he's not uh, – they said he's not a misogynist at all. He's not, like, homophobic. He's not transphobic. He called me whatever, you know, pronoun I wanted to be called in in seminar. Uh, they said, look, he's obsessed with the Soviet Union. He's obsessed with totalitarianism, and he's got a hair trigger – it's like he sees, he sees like, you know, in the way that a certain kind of person might see the handmaid's tale, you know, around every corner. Like he sees totalitarianism around every corner. And interesting. He, and so he basically overreacted to that particular situation. But anyway, so then I, I kind of like, I, I reached out to him and I had some, uh, some interactions with him and talked to him and he, I don't know. He's he's a very he's a complicated guy to understand. I mean, I I don't. Um, I I think his book Twelve Rules for Life is uh, is basically a harmless book. I I don't think anybody was upset about it. Um, he he's a, he's basically like a Joseph Campbell type, right? Mm -hmm. The okay. people who who read his book. Are are going to? I see him. I have a category of of books that I call John the Baptist books, you know. So J Joseph Campbell would be a Joseph the, you know, a, a John the Baptist book. They're the kind of books that sort of like rope in tons of people and they lead you um, to better things. They they sort of introduce you 
to sort of to better things. And then you you go on and you read all these other things, right? So lots of people went and read Nietzsche and and read lots of really, you know, good stuff based on the popularity of the power of myth, Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth. Likewise, tons of my, my students who read Jordan Peterson end up reading Dostoevsky, they end up reading Nietzsche, Solzhenitsyn. They, they end mm-hmm. up reading all this other really good stuff. And so he, he's not an end point. He's, no. okay. he's an opening into the intellectual life for a lot of people that uh, probably would, would not have encountered it, right? Uh, but in terms of the Jordan Peterson phenomenon, I don't think... I don't think even he really has a handle on what that is. And I think it's very possible that it could end in a kind of high Heidegger and like sort of tragedy. I hope not. Well, I, 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 just, I see it, that as a possibility. You know, I mean, the, he, he does have, I mean, it's, it's harder. I think it's sort of like the, 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 harder for me to, to have to read him because some of the things he says about the ladies are less than ideal. Um, to put it that way, like um, what? Well, some I don't, I don't want to go in, in, into into too many details. It's 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 also his interaction with people can be can be can be can be. As I say, it's it's he he performs rhetorically on a number of complicated levels, and so mm-hmm. that's uh, that's and 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 I think as a clinician, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. So there's there's you know one one would have to be to 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 be on you know uncautious to say otherwise but i i do i do appreciate the simple fact that he uh, has perhaps put uh, Carl, Carl gustav jung back on the map <laughs> which is for yeah. me already a lot because there never was any good reason for taking him off uh, I, I don't i myself have i'm probably going to destroy all of my Freud books because I've decided none of that's necessary. But, <laughs> but, 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 you know, Jung too will go along as well, and Lacan likewise. But, but there is, but if, but if you're going to go along with the unconscious and the very notion of the unconscious, then there's no reason not to also have a Jungian articulation of a cultural, a collective unconscious. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, what I was saying before about like you know the game, I. I feel the same the same kind of feeling when I read Freud. I mean, mm. Freud's a genius and he's he's incredibly interesting. But the same kind of abyss that I gaze into when I read mm-hmm. a shitty book like The Game, I feel myself gazing into the same the same abyss 80% of the time when I'm reading Freud. Freud is there's something dark and horrible and ugly in his, you know, and I, and I attribute this largely to, you know, having like had a number of friends uh, and family members who've had serious Coke addictions. There's something about that drug and he did massive amounts of it a lot. There's something about that drug that brings out a kind of intense, toxic narcissism and you know, it's it's always ugly when a human being is is like that. But it's especially ugly when it's associated with like a dude who's got some power and some privilege and authority, because then it's just like it gets extra ugly, right? It's like 
you are in a position where you have you can you can be a dick and get away with it a lot and now you've got a kind of a mindset that reinforces all of those pathways do you know what i mean like it's yes it's 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 very necessary that without i mean i i think i appreciate and i'm actually fascinated by the idea of looking at add cocaine addiction and and other things substance the substance is part of thing ontology. The other thing might be substance uh, uh, enjoyment or substance. I don't even I don't like the word abuse. Uh, 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 indulgence to uh, ontology, which might help us understand better Freud. I certainly think it would helps us understand Nietzsche better uh, in in many in many respects. Uh, but 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 harder harder for us to understand because we don't know what substances were at the time. So that's the other difficulty. At least with Freud, he's already closer to our generation than Nietzsche. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it, it's important, I think, to just recognize when it comes to any kind of substances, where it be like LSD or mushrooms or coke or heroin, that all of these substances are basically um, sort of triggering hormones and chemicals and states that, that are already possible in our brain. Like mm. it's not as if they're they're introducing something completely different, right? They're basically just triggering things that are already there. So when we read like William Blake or when we read like mystical experiences from the past, those are all human brains did all of those things and saw all of those things. So they're triggering things. So it is interesting to imagine like why is it that certain kinds of substances or situations or online environments like Twitter or Facebook mm -hmm. or like, how do they trigger certain kinds of uh, mentalities, right? Like a certain kind of way of seeing the world, like, and make that way of seeing the world like more uh, plausible or seem like a more, you know, like, like cynicism. I, I find cynicism really interesting. Like cynical perspective in certain contexts seems to just, it seems like common sense, right? And yet in other contexts, the cynical perspective seems really stupid and like <coughs> obtuse. You know, I mean, that's fascinating, right? I mean, like, like why would we want to put ourselves in situations on a continual basis whereby um, we expect the cynical perspective to be true? Right. So, for instance, I have this. I have this exercise. the The college complained about it, and so I can't do it anymore. It's not ever college, oh, but gosh. like, uh, but I had an exercise <laughs> that I would do for my students, which I wanted to illustrate to them um, why we got to the top of the food chain. And I basically was trying to show them that, like, we got to the top of the food chain because we are incredibly good at working with each other and being cooperative and empathizing and understanding each other and being, you know, being not dicks. Right. So I, and at one of the experiments I would do is I would, I would get them to like take out money and leave it in the classroom and uh, see if it was there in the classroom the next time we had the class in that room. <laughs> so, uh, and I would tell the the support staff, the like uh, the janitorial staff, I would tell them that I was doing this experiment. And so I said, like, if you guys see like money sitting on the desks or on the stuff, like just leave it there. It's not 
it's not mess. It's like it's there on purpose. So not mess. Uh, <laughs> so they would know that it wasn't like left there by accident, right? So so they would know that basically I was correcting for the fact that um, if it's gone, it's gone because another student or you know, God forbid, a faculty member took it, right? So and they would leave money in different parts of the classroom, which would be. Uh, not like sitting on a desk, but would be like fairly obvious. Like somebody would see it and uh, to see if somebody took it. And they would come back to the classroom and there'd be like $300 in like tens and fives and twenties all over the classroom and none of it was gone. <laughs> and it's like this incredible kind of epiphany where they're like, Oh my God, neoliberalism isn't true. Oh my God, like, <laughs> we're actually pretty nice most of the time. Like, we're mostly cooperative and kind and sweet and trustworthy. We have, like, a, you know, some dicks among us, but like, we're mostly nice. Like, and this is such a revelation to them. And that, that strikes me as really sad. Like, you know, and I think that colors a lot of the way in which we interact with the other and the way we, we interact with um, the way that heterosexual people and even some homosexual people deal with people of the opposite sex. It's it's this suspicion of people that that is if it's all about power. And where does that come from? Maybe because to a certain extent it might be. What do you mean? I mean, you well, you're in a you're in a classroom situation, and so you're able to control the experiment. I don't know if it would happen if it works that well in New York, although it probably would, especially if you were teaching the class. Uh, <laughs> but, but 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 we could because because the students understand, I think, what what you're trying to 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 do. Sometimes there is a, there is a question of of of. I mean, to go back to your testosterone example, there there is power. That mm -hmm. is sometimes in exchanged or sometimes involved, or there are fears that one can have, apprehensions that one can have, maybe justified. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm speaking as a New Yorker now, and New Yorkers are now, someone reminded me unpleasantly yesterday that New York is now forever associated with Donald Trump, which <laughs> I had not well, thought about. New until, York is until, one of the safest cities in the world right now. No, it's a very safe city, and, and I don't know if I'm entirely happy with that because I think that's also part of the hallelujah effect. I mean, I think that, 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 that I mean, I live in a, in a part of the city which is, which is, which is very close to Harlem and on the coast of the Hudson, but, but the, the, the edge of the Hudson, I guess we say, it's a river, it doesn't have coast. Uh, the bank oh, totally of the Hudson. Totally it has coast, thank you. Oh, we can have coasts? Oh, good. Oh, yeah. But, <laughs> I live on the coast of the St. Lawrence River, as See? did okay. Leonard Cohen. Yeah. See, then I'm on the coast of the Hudson. But anyway, coat. Uh, but I think because that's a French thing. But anyway, no, I, 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 I'm not. I'm sort of my nostalgia is for the violence of my youth, so that so that I remember when if I walked in Harlem, I would be taking my life in my hands, and I felt. That, that those individuals who who would be the ones who would have killed me, those the inhabitants, uh, would be justified in doing so. I thought they would be right to do that. Why? But now one has this huge docility. Everyone is nice. This is very scary. 
but I, I wonder why this is the case and how this has come to be. Did, how did one? How did one take anger? How did one take uh, because because it suddenly hasn't happened that the poor have suddenly ceased to be poor? They remain poor. They remain with the same struggles that they had when I was young. Those have not changed. But huh. that's a, but you walk down a safer street. That is true. <laughs> that is very very true. I think it's because they have the uh, the iPhone and they're checking stuff. Those. <laughs> So they're just not even paying attention, right? Like, oh, I know that that's true. I mean, I, I I know that that's true because, of course, I I I don't color my hair, so 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 it's perfectly clear to people that I'm one of those little old ladies that one could beat up and easily easily you know make off like a bandit from, uh, <laughs> uh, with all of their worldly goods and whatnot. But and your amazing camera. That's right. Your and amazing they, and they digital my, camera. Yeah. They they could take that. They could take all that stuff, and no one does. And nothing and that never happens. And and since I am a native New Yorker, I expect that they should and ought to, but it doesn't happen. And it, I think it's I think it's partly because they're they're on they're on their phones, <laughs> but the and they are because they're not looking. They don't see you. They don't see you to 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 plan. I mean that that would be the great the great the new secret for the superhero for the action movie would be the 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 young kid who's not online. That person would be able to <laughs> to triumph over evil in his neighborhood because he would just be aware of things. It's funny because uh, uh, Aaron Haspel and his his wife Lisa they they you know they're like uh, New Yorkers like you been there they're born and bred and uh, you know he was saying how uh, when he was in his twenties and he was mugged. Um, at gunpoint or knife point, numerous times he was he had his you know face smashed in and he was like wow. a number oh. of times and mm. he said now uh, you know when he and Lisa were were younger it was unthinkable to you know bike through um, Central Park let's say like especially like after dark and he said now his his you know his wife who's you know in her in her fifties. She bikes in the night through Central Park, yeah, and it's just changed, completely. Really. It's completely, and it's not because there's um, a huge police presence. It's not like it's That's like right. a police station. That's it's just because accurate. it's just changed. And mm-hmm. and I said, mm-hmm. well, what has changed? Because like, well, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly. It's just it's not. It's not the same thing. He goes like, if, you know, he goes when I was he was beaten up like a number of times when he was younger and and uh, you know walking down the street and he goes there would be people also on the street and they would just like walk away and and avert their eyes. And he goes that just wouldn't happen now. If somebody jumped you now, like everybody who was in the vicinity would you know yell and like would be like what's going on and would like call 911 or take pictures and would scream and yell and make a fuss they wouldn't you know sort of engage in the bystander effect and walk away they would That's they would take notice well I, I the bystander effect one of the theorists teaches at my university um I, I i'm not sure how true that is but i call that part of the hallelujah effect as far as i'm concerned i think that what has happened is very much a change in consciousness and awareness, not because I think people get involved, because I think in New York people are still, um, will, will still go out of their way to avoid talking to you. Um, but, but 
but rather some other thing. And that other thing could be a combination of, of that distraction, and it could be a number of other factors which, are, which would take a very complicated social uh, of a science experiment to devise and to study and to figure out, and access to things that I don't think we also know about. I mean, there, there, there is a complete change, because when you're driving, riding through Central Park at night, there's no bystanders who are preventing the, the people from attacking you. The, the attacks aren't occurring yes. when, on, on empty and empty streets. So it's not that, it's not that we've suddenly turned into Ohio, uh, uh, you know, where, where, where we are, you know, Hillary Clinton-like looking out for one another. Um, New Yorkers are still New Yorkers, I, th- I think. I think we're st- we still keep to ourselves. But, but uh, although, although we could take that up with Alan and I, we could talk about that maybe he's right, uh, but I but I think it's something deeper than that, and I do think it's part of the hallelujah effect, which I think to a certain extent and in a certain way changes our consciousness. I I, I take very very seriously those who talk about the internet bubble, those who talk about uh, uh, Sherry Turkle's discussion alone together, uh, that there is a transformation of consciousness in the world in a particular way, so that we live increasingly online, and that means that we're not in the real world. That's why. That's one of the other reasons I'm delighted whenever I get the chance to, to read any of your posts, see any of your photographs, your astonishing photographs, because they, and that's also why I put photographs myself sometimes of nature, it's, it's a sneak technique on my part to bring in the real world of yeah. what there is outside, uh, because we're not there. If anybody sees a photograph of mine, I've succeeded and I've lost at the same time, because they shouldn't see them. They should be out in the world, yeah. and 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 we're not, and we're not because of what I believe is the real insight of phenomenology, which is intentionality. We are in our minds and our hearts always elsewhere. We're what we're doing in the next minute. We're doing the thing. We're, we're it's very hard. It's why the yogis are perfect at that to put us where we are in the moment, or why you know the Christian sort of presence and awareness and 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 prayer will sometimes do that. Uh, we we it's very rare. But but if you can do that, that's you're, you're taking up a, a fight or a battle against what works beautifully with us, and it's why we like these little distraction devices and these and these and these self surveillances and these other surveillances. And I knew you were in in, in New Jersey because I I was stalking you on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. You, it just yeah. came up. I wasn't yeah. looking, but there it was. And I no, was like, oh, I, I stalk you on you Facebook know, too. And, so. and, and and John, you know, you know, doesn't see me. Does does he call? Does he write? No. Anyway, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's so. it's funny because I I get um, my students to do this exercise where they split into groups and like groups of like five or six. And they have to go to, and there's a couple of different locations they can go to, and they have to basically just they they tr- they have to turn off their phones completely, and like they have to have if they have any watches they have to hand them in and hand in everything, and they have to just and I say like look I'm gonna come and tell you after an hour has passed, and they have to just spend an hour with each other, and. They can spend, I mean, none of them do, but like they can spend that hour in silence if they want, but they just have to be um, completely in that moment with those people and interacting with those people. And it's amazing what a, a powerful experience it is 
for both for them, you know, because you know, for for people like us who grew up in a different era, it wouldn't necessarily be as subversive as it is for my students because we grew up in an era where um, among our many skills, we learned how to like sort of go off in our head by ourselves. <laughs> so like like even if we're in a group of people, you know, we can like go off and imagine and be not paying any attention to what's happening. But they, for the most part, have not developed that skill. So if they don't have a, a something that is, like you said, the kid with the iPad, the greatest, like, you know, soother ever, right? Like, if they don't have, like, a thing that can focus their attention, then they basically are thrown on the mercy of the moment, Right which for them is it can be a very revelatory powerful experience right so and and they the, the responses that they get they're like it's amazing they suddenly feel this this immediate bond with a lot of the the other students and like wow you know like he's such an interesting person she's so fascinating like and well yeah that's you know the humans are generally speaking pretty cool like so but like it's they've never really given anybody their full attention right which is fascinating i mean like that's like how how did we ever think that this was going to be a good idea <laughs> well it's it's the beauty and the key point is only that it works that's 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 the other point of the effect. It is efficacious. It it functions. This is the most amazing thing. When when and I I think I tried to talk to you about that before. When I first wrote wrote the Hallelujah Effect, I was amazed that social scientists fell into two categories: those who argued that there was a way to hijack human consciousness. And there were those who said, no, that never happens. We're always free. We're always able to do this. But the interesting thing... A rational choice. <laughs> exactly. Bingo. No, you're right. That's it. That's what people said. And they said, that's, we always are free. We're, you know, like, like, like Donald Trump's State of the Union address, we're always free. We've always been free. Uh, but, it, it, but it occurred to me that, that in point of fact, that's not the case. And the marketing works. And the, the, the Hallelujah Effect is efficacious. It's a, it's, it's, and Leonard Cohen was never able to get people to do a moratorium on the hallelujah. Because to this day, if someone comes along who can do in the same way Katie Lang did, but do it in a different way and take that song over again, we're all going to be blown away by it. Yeah. Well, we had this, there's this uh, colleague of mine in my department just a, a beautiful, wonderful man. You would love this guy. He actually, I gave him a copy of the Hallelujah Effect, and he loved it. He like, uh, he just marked it all up with like red I, pen I hope in and a everything. paperback version. I hope um, the paperback. The, uh, yes, not the. Oh, because we're, the we're not even we're not even going to get into that's that. That's because of you. The paperback. Yeah, that's yeah. Because of you. The thirty dollar like uh, the thirty dollar paperback, not the like. You know, whatever, a hundred dollars. It's, like, it's, it's better. It's better. It's yeah. better. It's so much better in paperback. It's better. Yeah. Really. Actually, you know what I think it's, it's soft best. And fluffy you know what I think it's best at? Okay. No. I didn't want to get the, but you know what? I am gonna get into this. Um, the best version of your book that I've encountered, and I've encountered the hard cover from the library and the soft cover, the best version that I've encountered is the Kindle version. 
Really? I wow. actually, I highly recommend to <laughs> all of um, uh, to all of the listeners that you buy the Kindle version of the Hallelujah Effect because it's uh, something about having it on your phone and having it right there. And you have the ability to do a word search immediately so that you can, like, go back and, like, you hear echoes of a previous point that was developed in, like, 100 pages ago. You can go back and, like, read that. And then you can, like, it's it's very, very, very powerful. But you know what I think would be the best? And I was going to tell you this. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now. You need to do an audiobook version. Oh. Because you have a beautiful, beautiful, like dramatic. I was in theater before I fell into philosophy voice. Um, you should do a an audiobook version because I I have gotten really, really into the whole audiobook thing. And it's it's very, very powerful. If you if you sort of listen to and and the thing is, the big difference is it has to be the author that reads the book. It has to be the author that reads the book. The The first time I encountered this was, uh, you know, uh, years ago when we we travel a lot from Canada to the States. And we were going down there and so we, we were deciding as a family, like, what we're going to read. And the boys really were into Malcolm Gladwell at the time. They're like, we want to hear Malcolm Gladwell. So we got uh, Malcolm Gladwell's audiobooks and we got, like, you know, Blink, uh, What the Dog Saw, and uh, Outliers and stuff like that. Anyway, and he reads his books. And his books are so much more powerful when you hear his voice reading them, because he's the author, right? And so I've I've started listening to lots and lots of I've listened to hundreds of audiobooks, and your books would be so so powerful if you had an audiobook version where it's like you reading your book, because it just you can convey all sorts of nuance and detail in your intonation and your voice that. It, it's really, really hard to communicate that in, I mean, it's possible, but it's hard in text, right? But uh, yeah, you should, you should totally do like an audiobook. Have you ever considered that? Or Well, it's one of the reasons I like to do videos. I do think people don't watch them. I think people, I think people listen to them. So I think people subvert left and right. And I think that one of the things that happens with a video is that you know, students will, the Khan Academy, for example, they're not watching that. They're listening in the background while they're doing the rest of their life. It's a very important thing. So, Khan, so he's, I, I'm, he's a I'm very moved by, yeah. I may, I'm very, I'm very moved by your point. It's also why I'm thrilled to be on this and this podcast with you. Uh, and, and also I love the images that you have had of it because you do a perfect, uh, I think picture book perfect representation as if you were doing at least the pictures I've seen look to me as if you were sort of like a, a kind of a kind of radio a radio broadcaster so like a kind mm. of classic kind classic kind well maybe I, it's I the think, hat maybe it's the picture yeah. I saw with the hat could be that maybe you don't always wear the hat but I think of you as wearing the hat the hat yeah well it's <laughs> well, the, so the, the, yeah. the audio yeah absolutely it's totally an affectation <laughs> totally but, that totally uh, but but the I think it's it's uh when it when it's when it's just audio 
I think you have to focus on what's being said more than if you have video, uh, there's a temptation to just sort of (laughs) look at what's like, what's the, the person and like, and how it's being said and how they look and how they, and that, that can be really, really distracting. No, you're, like completely, you're completely yeah. right. No, no, no. I, I, I think there's huge truth to that. And I realized that also when I made a lecture when I couldn't meet my students and I made a lecture on Descartes, this, the second meditation. Mm. And I just, I just made that lecture uh, using images and images alone. And, and, and that was vastly more effective because they weren't distracted by but students are always distracted. What are you doing with your hands? Why are you standing that way? Because sort of I, like, for instance, I, I had, uh, I mean, this is a number of years ago, but there's a class where I signed uh, one of your books and, and then somebody independently, this like, actually this really brilliant young woman, um, lesbian actually, but anyway, but she, she, um, she really loved your stuff like big time anyway and she went and she watched this video of you online and I I was so curious to know what she saw I never got to the bottom of that but she watched this video of you and she was very kind of distraught and and kind of confused and I I said what I said what's what what was wrong with your expectations and she goes like well the voice that she has in, like, I can't remember which book it was in that class. But anyway, she goes, the voice that she has in the in the book that you assigned is different than the person I saw in that YouTube video. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, the person in the YouTube video was this very um, kind of serious, uh, stiff, uh, kind of like very... Uh, <laughs> and she goes, and the voice in in the book was this almost like a trickster figure like this really really playful diabolical kind of like a almost like a Jonathan John Stewart type like like just like kind of you're never really sure how serious she is <laughs> she's always kind of fucking with you a bit and she's kind of like this really kind of playful funny kind of character and in the in the interview it was very very serious and so um it took a it took a while for me like i think she eventually she showed me on her phone one time when we were on the bus she was on the bus with me at the same time as me and she showed me on her phone and it was this interview that was done by a student and it was a very the the entire setup of the interview was very serious and you were talking about uh I, I've never actually seen this particular interview, which is weird because I thought I saw all of the interviews. But it was an interview where you were talking about, uh, and you made an allusion. You didn't say her name, but you made an allusion to uh, Margaret uh, Nussbaum or Martha Nussbaum. Yes, And yes, you said yes. how, yes, well, she's acceptable because she shows up and she's like total like waspy chick and she's got like the pearls and she and so and and uh and you said like you know i i just think i just think women should have the have the rights props and intellectuals i mean you know what are we doing i mean we're people who are really kind of obsessed with ideas right like so 
we should be able to kind of get into character and why do, why do we have to be so empathetic all the time? Can't we just sometimes be like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm basically trying to remember like a 10 year old memory here, but like in the video, it was something like where you're saying how, you know, why can't we just be absent minded and not kind of like really into what you're saying to us that we didn't ask you to say to us, <laughs> like, uh, why can't we be kind of like kind of absent minded and why can't we have the right to be absent minded? Why do we have to be like all up in your grill and like really sensitive and kind of compassionate and empathetic? <laughs> And, uh, and and so the student, she said, well, she goes, like, I completely agreed 100% with what she was saying, but her demeanor and her, like, her speech and her, her on the, in the video didn't accord with what she was saying. Because she wow. seemed very serious and, and sort of apologetic. But the way to say what she was saying would be like, you know, get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> why are you asking me this? I'm not your guidance counselor. I'm your fucking philosopher. Like, like, why are you... Like, the, the proper response to the student's question was contempt. But instead, it got... No, 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 we don't do that at Fordham. And we should... And one shouldn't do that. Good gosh. No. No, no we try to. We try to be, be be more serious, especially with students. I so think. that was a Fordham student in this video? Yes. Yes, that was a Fordham okay. student. Okay. See, that's a detail so, I didn't understand. So, 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 and that I would have was, had exactly the same response. If and it was a John Abbott College student? And, and, you know, it was, that was women's, women's, uh, week and, or something. And oh, wow. they, they were so doing had to be this extra pious. student, student interview. And I think I was pretty risque about mentioning Martha Nussbaum anyway, as it was. You didn't was, mention her was, by name. Okay, probably. But everybody okay. who knows what you're saying knew exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh no. Anyway, this is this is this has been this is I I I unfortunately have have to go downtown at six o'clock. So that means I have to actually leave now. So and I will yeah. leave I would love to walk. I have to the be streets, I have to be my mom's my mom's sixty ninth birthday is at six. So I have to Oh my god. You I too. have to leave okay. too. <laughs> both of us, both of us have. Okay, so you get the last. You get the last word because uh, you got to have the last word. My, give well, it, give last, us the last my, word. Absolutely, John. Thank you so much. I'm very, very grateful always to have the chance to chat with you, and I look forward to the chance to see you again. That yeah. would be even better. We'll have to get together sometimes. Right. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe in New York. Maybe you'll come down to New York, and and we'll do this on video. We shall indeed. So, <laughs> okay. what would your your last lines be to? Uh, to to our listeners, Jesus wept or no? What? No, I I I I I wouldn't say Jesus wept. My my <laughs> my 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 last lines is always if you want to mention Jesus at all, is always to get people to to think about Nietzsche's reflections on what Jesus came to learn about human beings as a God of love, because Valentine's Day is coming up, and you know we think in February of of love and so on, but but. Jesus wept, but why would he weep in, from Nietzsche's point of view? Because if you want people to love you, you're in trouble. So. <laughs> well, have a wonderful night, and uh, you definitely have to come on the podcast again soon. No, I'd be love to do that. We have so much more and, to talk about. And I'm serious, and I'm serious about the possibility of a video uh, uh, interview with you. 
All right. Well, we're, if All we right. do that, we're going to capture your your playfulness, not your seriousness. <laughs> oh, with you, I'm sure that will work. Okay. <laughs> All right. Take care of it, Thank you, John. Good night. Bye.